Is anybody else feeling a little bit nervous that Matt's not here? I mean, he's currently battling, what, minus eight degrees in Toronto? Yes. I got a photo from him yesterday where he's in the biggest coat I've ever seen and he's battling through what looks like snow, making a pretty big deal about it. <laughs> Matt's, Matt's life, it reads as a rich fiction. <laughs> Here, look, a bird flew into the into the glass uh, sliding door that we have down front and shattered it. So isn't that fun? Yeah. Or like the cat getting into some paint and just... <laughs> trailing it all over the the upstairs of his house like can you remember the uh woman that ate 25 percent of his eggs yeah like he ordered scrambled eggs in a restaurant and she she, she made some for herself and some for him and he got 75 percent, and she got 25 percent. Oh, and then she maintained eye contact with him while she ate them from across the the counter which was yeah great. see and that's kind of stuff that doesn't happen in everyone's lives you know my exciting thing was like making sure when i was checking the the doors were all locked last night the neighbor across the way his garage was open so i had to knock on these people's door at 10 o'clock at night and scare the crap out of them that's my exciting life like <laughs> definitely not as good as 25 percent eggs <laughs> so we've gotten some reviews since the show where we we called out our one star review and this one i think was was perfect the title says funny not memorable five stars love the silly nonsense and delightful banter love that it's a perfect escape for security professionals p.s not a teenager. This is, of course, the callback to the one-star review of Silly Nonsense for Teenagers. So I love it. I love that people are, are picking up the torch. Keep them coming. Ever, ever since that review, like, Silly Nonsense has been just embedded in my consciousness. And, and I've, I've been, like, trying to use it here and there. Yeah. I love that people are confirming, you know, just to make sure I'm not a teenager. Yeah. That's the what really puts the, the seal on it, right? It's, you know, it's silly nonsense. It's delightful banter. I'm not Chad GPT. I'm not a teenager. <laughs> this is like a legit review from an honest person <laughs> here for the good stuff. <laughs> well, should we get into some Watchtower Weekly? Let's do it. Okay. First story of the day. Twitter's two-factor authentication change doesn't make sense. Twitter recently announced that as of March 20, it will only allow its users to secure their accounts with SMS-based two-factor authentication if they pay for a Twitter Blue subscription. Twitter's two-factor move is the latest in a series of controversial policy changes since Elon Musk acquired the company last year. The paid service Twitter Blue, the only way to get a blue verified checkmark on Twitter accounts, now costs $11 per month on Android and iOS and less for a desktop-only subscription. Users being booted off of SMS two-factor authentication will have the option to switch to an authenticator app or a physical security key. Quote, while historically a popular form of 2FA, unfortunately, we have seen phone number-based 2FA be used and abused by bad actors, Twitter wrote in a blog post published Friday evening. So starting today, we will no longer allow accounts to enroll in the text message slash SMS method of 2FA unless they are Twitter Blue subscribers. In a July 2022 report about account security, Twitter said that only 2.6% of its active users have any type of two-factor authentication enabled. Of those users, nearly 75% were using the SMS version. Almost 29% were using authenticator apps, and less than 1% had added a physical authentication key. That uh, editorial does not surprise me whatsoever. SMS-based two-factor authentication is insecure because attackers can hijack targets 
phone numbers, or use other techniques to intercept the texts. But security experts have long emphasized that using SMS two-factor is significantly better than having no authentication factor enabled. Ricky Mondello said in a recent blog post, post that this is a huge deal for a few reasons. People who don't use password manager software, and that's a lot of people, almost always reuse the same passwords across the services they use. For many of them, SMS 2FA provides value despite its flaws. Making a person's weak or reused password not sufficient to gain access to their accounts is genuinely good, even if a very motivated attacker could compromise the SMS channel or fish the one-time code. SMS 2FA is the most prevalent form of 2FA used on Twitter. SMS 2FA is relatively usable and accessible. Lots of people understand what it means to give a service like Twitter their phone number and can figure out how to enter a code that's texted to them. Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, is trying to extract as much value from the service as he can as quickly as he can. This has meant finding ways to increase revenue, like pushing Twitter's paid tier, cutting costs, and firing large swaths of Twitter's staff. Eliminating SMS 2FA for non-paid users is the company's most recent cost-cutting measure. In a reply to Marquez Brownlee, Musk writes, Twitter is getting scammed by phone companies for $60 million a year of fake 2FA SMS messages. So... Yeah, this is obviously driven by cost-cutting measures, but just from the outside, it's just a weird move, especially to those of us in the security community who are like, that's not a great thing to have anyway, and now it's a paid perk? Like, this this doesn't make a ton of sense. That's the part that really threw me off, because I'm like, okay, we're getting rid of the SMS to FA because it's a security risk. Like, it's not good, you know, people can skim it, you know, and Twitter's getting scammed for 60 million a year, says Elon. So, okay, like, we're going to get rid of it. And then it's like, but wait, hold on a moment. If you give us $11 a month, then you can put this insecure, scammy thing back on your account. So it's unsecure, but it's good, but it's bad. But if you give me money, I'll let you keep having bad stuff. Like, I, I don't follow that logic train at all. Like that's, it's just bizarre to me. Well, actually, so Sarah, like as you were saying it, it clicked for me. No one is thinking about the security implications here whatsoever on the Twitter side of things. It's purely, it's costing us money to have this thing enabled for non-paid users. So we're going to turn it off for non-paid users. Paid users, they can turn it back on because it's unlikely that someone is going to pay to scam us. Right. It just felt like such a, a rash decision as well, because like, I remember like watching it all play out. And when people and users were being asked to disable 2FA, when they did, Twitter was still sending out the follow-up emails saying, you know, you've turned off two-factor authentication. This means you'll no longer have this added protection and be more vulnerable. So people were taking to Twitter screenshotting these emails. So yeah, from the outside, it looks like such a rash decision that hasn't really been thought through it's just so weird i don't know it just seems like it's one of those again where you're saying anna he makes a decision this is how it is and then afterwards it's like okay let's figure out the story behind the decision and let's figure out the reasoning and then we can talk about it like i think it's one of those things where if instead you turned around like this is an opportunity you could partner with other apps and be like hey there's a whole bunch of apps you could use out there to make sure your password's not crap Make sure you've got an authenticator service out there that's super easy to use so you don't have to have your phone with you. 
these are services out here. If you pay for your subscription, we'll include this add-on as a perk for you. And then you can have more fun in your internet life. Like that's kind of how you want to evolve security. You want to bring people in. You want to give them more for their money as opposed to taking away something they have already and then saying, well, you can buy it back. Mm. Nobody wants to buy something back. That's true. Yeah. Uh, This next one comes to us from bleepingcomputer.com. GoDaddy hackers stole source code and installed malware in a multi-year breach. Web hosting giant GoDaddy says it suffered a breach where unknown attackers have stolen source code and installed malware on its servers after breaching its cPanel shared hosting environment in a multi-year attack. While GoDaddy discovered the security breach following customer reports in early December 2022 that their sites were being used to redirect to random domains, the attackers had access to the company's network for multiple years. GoDaddy said, quote, Based on our investigation, we believe these incidents are part of a multi-year campaign by a sophisticated threat actor group that, among other things, installed malware on our systems and obtained pieces of code related to some services within GoDaddy. The company says that previous breaches disclosed in November 2021 and March 2020 are also linked to this multi-year campaign. The November 2021 incident led to a data breach affecting 1.2 million managed WordPress customers after attackers breached GoDaddy's WordPress hosting environment using a compromised password. They gained access to the email addresses of all impacted customers, their WordPress admin passwords, SFTP and database credentials, and SSL private keys of a subset of active clients. After the March 2020 breach, GoDaddy alerted 28,000 customers that an attacker used their web hosting account credentials in October 2019 to connect to their hosting account via SSH. GoDaddy says it also found additional evidence linking the threat actors to a broader campaign targeting other hosting companies worldwide over the years. We have evidence, and law enforcement has confirmed that this incident was carried out by a sophisticated and organized group targeting hosting services like GoDaddy, the hosting company said in a statement. According to information we have received, their apparent goal is to infect websites and servers with malware for phishing campaigns, malware distribution, and other malicious activities. GoDaddy is one of the largest domain registrars, and it also provides hosting services to over 20 million customers worldwide. Multi-year malware-based attacks like this terrify me. Terrifying. International organizations. Yes. Oof. Not this like one random person doing some stuff, you know, that we caught. Like this is a concerted effort to really just go for it. And then, like you said, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of what we learned this week coming out of the last pass breach, where it was a time period that spanned, in this case, months, but then ultimately ended up being a very targeted attack against someone with privileges that gave them access to basically all of the company infrastructure and then all of customer data beyond that and that stuff is just it's it's really scary to read that stuff i think the scary part for me is they alerted the twenty eight thousand customers i'm thinking okay twenty eight thousand customers okay but then it's the implication beyond that where i'm like it's not twenty eight thousand customers it's twenty eight thousand company websites, people who have things out there where if they had just one major website that's doing e-commerce or something like that, and they have 7,000 customers, those customers' information could then be compromised because of it. Like it's, it's not just a matter of GoDaddy's customers. It's because of that flaw that now all these other people can end up compromised. And it's, it's quite remarkable to think they're just trying to put stuff on your website. Like they're trying to make it look like they're not actually there. And it's like, how do you, how do you guard against all of these things at the same time? Like it's, oh, the internet's scary. Help me. Almost as scary as Twitter. (laughs) 
the piece of this that like as as a company that is uh, purveyors of fine security software that like gives me gives me comfort if this were to to come to our doorstep is just the fact that like we don't have access to the data we have no way to access the data that exists in our customers vaults like the information that they've stored in one password is theirs it is secured with data or information they own only they can get access to so like that aspect is totally walled off from us as a company and that part is like that's the comfort that i get from from this stuff most definitely all right this next story takes us over to gizmodo.com oakland declared a state of emergency after a ransomware attack a week after a ransomware attack struck the city of Oakland, local officials declared a state of emergency. The California city's network issues hampered city services and operations. The Office of City Administrator G. Harold Duffy released an official statement in which Duffy asked residents for, quote, patience and understanding as the government works to get its systems back online. Duffy said, quote, The city of Oakland continues to work around the clock to implement recovery plans that will restore impacted systems as quickly and as securely as possible. The network outage has impacted many non-emergency systems, including our ability to collect payments, process reports, and issue permits and licenses. As a result, some of our buildings are closed. We encourage the public to email the service counters they want to visit before coming to city buildings. It is unknown which cybercriminal group is behind the attack. City officials haven't said whether a ransom demand has been made or if they've entered into negotiations with the hackers. Early reports of the attack said that it had downed computers at all of the city's public libraries. At the time of recording, Oakland's crippling ransomware attack is now in its third week. Many police services have been restored to field officers so they can check identities, criminal records, and warrants. But Oakland's Oak 311 phone system remains out with no phone service, forcing residents to use Oakland Fire Department Dispatch's non-emergency line to report downed trees, flooding, and outages. The city of Baltimore famously spent close to $20 million to recover from a single ransomware attack in 2019. After the city finally recovered from the incident, Baltimore County's school system was struck by a ransomware the very next year. Ugh. Ugh. These ransomware stories are, are just, they're exhausting. They don't let up. It's always something new. Mm-hmm. And they always target basic services. You know, like you're taking down city administration, you're taking down hospital networks. You know, you're really messing up the lives of millions of millions of people like when you mess with someone's fire service, like, you know, I know in the report, you know, we've got them using the non-emergency line for down trees, flooding out. What do you do if your neighbor's house is on fire? Yeah. I think yeah. the hard part too is when you see some of this stuff and a lot of the time it comes down to someone having a, a stupid password where they're like using admin one, two, three on a city server, which holds all of the information. And it's, it's just that easy. And it's like, come on guys. Like, if you protect yourself, then you can protect everyone. And it's like having better policies and better practices and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a great idea, but unless you're actually making sure people are doing it right, you know, you, you open the door for so much not good to happen in your community. And it's, it seems to be happening way more prevalently. It's also like that moral conundrum of do we pay? Do we not pay? Do we, you know, pay to get everything recovered quickly? Or do we fund cybercrime, basically? Oh, yeah. That balance of like, just foot the bill here and and be done with this. But then also sort of the fear that like, if you do pay it, do they actually peel back the attack? Or is it like, are you going to be totally hosed anyway? It's terrible situation to be in. Yeah, there's something to be said, uh, what you were saying about the moral side of it too, Anna, where it's, you know, I don't want to spend like Baltimore $20 million 
to get my stuff back. Like you shouldn't have to do that, but then how much is it costing you every day by not having your things open? Mm -hmm. You know, every day you've got, you know, city services offline, you're not closing building permits, you're not moving things ahead. Like how much money is that costing the city and all of that kind of stuff, not only on the day-to-day immediate operations, but long-term impact. So, you know, it's one of those like deal with the devil kind of situations where it's like, I guess I will pay the money because, then I can have my stuff back. But then, you know, how do I make sure this never happens again? And how do I learn? Like if I'm Los Angeles and I'm looking at Oakland here, I'm like, how do we make sure this doesn't happen to us? Like, let's look at all the municipalities around us and say, okay, if this happens Mm -hmm. to them, it happens to us. It's happening everywhere, not just in big cities, it's in small cities. And it really, really throws a wrench in everyday life. Yeah. Agreed. I feel like there's no guidebook on how to deal with ransomware, like where it strikes. I'm, I'm envisioning a new TV show where it's like, you know, SWAT 911. <laughs> We're here with the ransomware team, you know, and there's a mobile computer van set up out front where they're like, here, we're going to help you figure this out. Don't worry. We're, we're the resource people. That TV show doesn't exist yet because there's just not, everyone is busy like, oh, shit something happened and you know it's just really a bunch of people in a room looking at each other do you know what to do i don't know what to do, do you know what to do i don't know what do you do actually rue you might agree with me on this but the guest interview this week there could be a good documentary made about that story oh absolutely you're totally right this final news story here is a perfect lead-in to this week's interview with renee dudley and dan golden i'm super excited for this interview it's going to be a ton of fun Joining me on the show today are two hugely respected journalists, Renee Dudley and Dan Golden. They are here today to discuss their new book, The Ransomware Hunting Team, a band of misfits improbable crusade to save the world from cybercrime. This is an incredible real-life technological thriller about a team of eccentric misfits taking on the biggest cybersecurity threats of our time. It's got rave reviews, and I'm excited to dive deeper into the book today. It's great to have both of you here with me. How are you doing, and how does your launch go? Doing great. Yeah. Thanks for having us here. So far, so good. I was just spreading the word that the book was named an Amazon editor's pick for best nonfiction this month. So we're very excited. Yes, I saw that. I saw that. It's been out since the 25th of October. Dan, how have you been keeping up with all the the fame and, and the fandom that has come from releasing a new book? Well, it's been very enjoyable. We had three different launch parties, one in New York, one in Boston, one in Washington, D.C. So that was all great. It's it's a nice excuse to see old friends. And uh, I've gotten a lot of nice feedback from people who've already read it and are recommending it to others. And, you know, the New York Times called it brilliant, which was a nice thing for a reviewer to say. And it's been, you know, pure enjoyment so far. That's awesome. And it's given us a chance to spread the word about this hunting team and and the feats that it accomplishes and to bring some attention to a very little known but important group of people who, you know, labor with no compensation to protect all of us. So that's been gratifying as well. Yeah, I bet. Wow. So Renee, can you give us a little bit of background about how you and Dan came together and and how you decided to write this book and why it's important to write now? Sure. So we're both at ProPublica. Dan was my editor back in 2018 when I first started at ProPublica. And we decided that we were interested in delving into ransomware. I'd been hearing from chief information security officers at you know, big publicly traded companies that this was a growing threat. Of course, this was before ransomware was in the news every day. 
And so we decided to dive in and Dan insisted that there must be some U.S. connection to this whole world beyond the fact that so many victims are located here. So I dove in and found that very quickly, everybody connected to this world was recommending that I talk to a guy named Demon Slave 335, who turns out to be Michael Gillespie, who would later become the hero of our book. But at the time, of course, I'd never heard of him. And I tracked him down. And he wasn't too interested in talking at first. But I started talking to some of his other you know, collaborators and learned that he's a part of this global team of about a dozen people across seven countries who work to crack ransomware. So ransomware locks victims' files and demands a ransom payment in exchange for a key to unlock those files. But Michael and his ransomware hunting team across the globe find vulnerabilities in different strains of ransomware and are able to help victims get their files back without having to pay hackers. And so as time goes on, I ultimately interviewed Michael and a couple members of the team. They were extremely helpful. But at a certain point, I thought it would be a good idea to go visit Michael in person because he was so helpful and I thought he had more to share. It's always nice to see sources in person. And I went to go visit him at his home in rural Illinois. And he greets me from his front porch swing. He's very modest. He's in this home that needs a lot of work in this working class neighborhood. He's just an unassuming guy. And we start talking ransomware and, you know, went on. He got more comfortable and he started for the first time sharing more about his personal life. I learned that he just overcame cancer. He's only 28 years old. I learned that he's struggling to make ends meet. He has to switch off his electric one month so he can pay the water and then pay the water the next month and switch off the electric because they just don't have enough money, surrendered a car to a bank. And what was so striking is that all of this is happening in the background as he's saving truly dozens and dozens of people every day from paying hackers without charging them a cent. And you know, he would be opening up his Twitter to 40 DMs every time he looked, you know, every every half hour or so. And it was so striking to me that he was doing all of that for free at what appeared to be this great personal expense, sought no fame, no glory, no compensation whatsoever. And he's the best in the world at what he does, but he's just this guy on his own. He's got no assistant. He's got no handlers. He's just doing this, you know, on his own with the help of this global team. We don't do many profiles at ProPublica, but I was so blown away by by Michael and his work and his circumstances that I called Dan. And I said, you know, this guy's really interesting. I think we've got a pretty good profile here. The book sort of came forth after that. The rest is history. Dan and I decided to to write it together. It's really amazing to hear about an individual who could very easily monetize this service. Like this is, I, mean, I say easily, there is certainly a market for this service and yet chooses to continue as a free service or, or something that he does altruistically. And that's one of the uh, requirements of joining the hunting team. You know, if you're a member of the hunting team, you're not allowed to charge for these code-breaking services that they provide. And so they've saved you know, millions of people and institutions from paying billions of dollars in ransom 
but one of the binding parts of their sort of contract with each other is that they don't charge anybody. Wow. That's unbelievable. So Dan, this is not your first book that you've put out in the world. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of taking something that sounds like it almost could have started as a as a news story and and is you shaped it out into a book like what does that process look like well it, it takes a lot of reporting and a lot of thinking and conceptualizing and in this case we were very lucky because we really had two compelling stories right one is the story of michael and the members of the ransomware hunting team and these ordinary selfless people doing these extraordinary things at great cost to their personal lives but the other is we realized there was a larger story that needed to be told in a book length, which is also the rise of ransomware. So our book puts the, this story of the ransomware hunting team in the context of the history of ransomware from the time it was invented by a brilliant, eccentric Harvard PhD and primatologist named Joe Pop up to the present day. And we were fortunate in the sense that the world was unfortunate while we were researching the book in that as we were researching it, the threat of ransomware got worse and worse. The, the targets got bigger, the amounts of money demanded went from you know a few hundred dollars demanded from individuals to millions of dollars demanded from businesses and hospitals and universities and then government agencies. The ransomware hackers began not just to make ransom demands, but to steal information and threaten to leak it if they weren't paid. So it evolved from what was an intriguing cybercrime to what was a, a worldwide threat and crisis. And that gave us the kind of art that you can use to, to shape a book. Wow. Yes, I can imagine that, as you said, like poor timing for humanity, but great timing for, for you from the book point of view. That's often the case with investigative journalism, right? The worse the problem for humanity, the, the better the, the tale and the, the more compelling the investigation. Unfortunately, that that's part of the job. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the the moral challenges and, and some of the ransomware scenarios that the team has faced? Well, in terms of moral challenges, the greatest moral challenge in a way is that faced by the victims of ransomware and the hunting team offers a way out because the challenge is always to pay or not to pay. If you pay, you get the, the key back quicker and you get your files restored. But on the other hand, you're rewarding criminals and you're incentivizing more ransomware. So one of the chapters in our book looks at the city of Baltimore, which was hit by a ransomware attack, shut down a lot of the city's services and made it hard to buy and sell homes and to do other very important activities. It was a demand for $80,000 and the mayor quite courageously refused to pay said, we're going to recover on our own. We won't reward criminals. Well, it took months to recover. The city ended up spending $18 million on recovery. The mayor lost his reelection bid. He only got 6% of the vote. So it's a tough choice. And, you know, the FBI always says, oh, don't pay the ransom. But, you know, there's not a lot of alternatives sometimes. If the ransomware hunting team can't crack every code, just some codes, some codes are unbreakable. There has to be a mistake for them to crack it. So, if you attack a hospital and you shut down its records and its files and its diagnostic equipment, they can't treat patients. And sometimes it's a matter of life and death or a business might have to shut down if it doesn't pay the ransom. So that's the great moral quandary that the hunting team potentially offers a solution to, but only in some cases. Yeah, it was so interesting to me to hear about this because when I hear about ransomware, it really... It feels like an all or nothing type scenario. Like it's sort of it's sort of a as someone who works in in cryptography day in and day out, this feels like a very unrecoverable 
situation. But as you said, like there's there are flaws that can be exploited here. Renee, can you talk a little bit about some of the the tools and the tactics? Yeah, they look for vulnerabilities in the ransomware. So one of the vulnerabilities is that cryptography relies on random numbers and hackers use what's called a random number generator to seed the number that becomes the key. And sometimes when they're using this, it's not truly random. In other words, they will start repeating numbers after a certain point and the hunters can exploit that and use that to find the key. Other times they find vulnerabilities in the hacker's infrastructure. They might find a weakness in the server that they're using. And, you know, Michael himself has actually hacked back, gone into the hacker's own servers to retrieve keys that he uses to develop tools to give to victims. Or they might use the same key too many times. You know, in one case, the victim gets the key because they paid and then they can use that key to help other people who haven't paid. And then as Renee says, with the random numbers, sometimes you could do what's called brute forcing the system where you can make so many efforts to crack the color that eventually you find the pattern and come up with the key. So they have a whole variety of tools and just depends on the type of ransomware, whether it's uh, symmetric or asymmetric or hybrid. They look for sort of telltale signs of weakness in each of those methods. Yeah, I suppose that does make sense as I as I think about it more that, you know, just as we are constantly working to protect against against vulnerabilities in our systems and the software that we develop, I mean the same the same has to be said for for the attackers in this case. So you spoke to a number on the ransomware hunting team. What did you find as sort of the through line for their motivations? Like what was what was the main thing that that they all sort of echoed back to you? You know, a number of them, Michael, Fabian, Karsten Hahn and others, they come from backgrounds of poverty or abuse. A lot of them are self-taught. You know, many of them didn't attend college. Some of them even dropped out of high school. And I think that many of them feel, first of all, there's this intellectual challenge. They have these skills that they've taught themselves by taking books out of the library or watching YouTube videos or even from each other. And they want to use them. They know that they're some of the only people in the world that have those skills. And they feel expectation of them to to use them for the greater good. But when it comes to their backgrounds, I think a lot of them feel a sort of underdog mentality. They want to fight back. It's their way of fighting back against the bullies in the world. You know, they, they might hearken that back to the people who bullied them when they were kids. And you know, for Michael and for many of the others on the team, the internet is kind of their intellectual home. And Michael, for one, he doesn't want bad guys on his turf. And this is his way of policing the place where he spends so much of his day. And Michael comes from a law enforcement background. Now, there's a police lieutenant who was a relative or a police officer. And when he was a kid, his parents used to take him to see this Superman statue that's a tourist attraction in his part of Illinois. You know, this part of them, I think their minds, it's a fantasy of being a uh, a superhero, saving the world. That's part of what motivates them, I think. You mentioned, Michael, having a, a law enforcement background. In the book, you call out that this team is helping people where government, FBI, law enforcement either can't or won't. Why is that? 
Like Dan mentioned earlier, the FBI tells people not to pay. Paying, of course, makes ransomware go round and round because the more you reward hackers, the more they're going to do it. They provide no practical alternative. And so the team offers that. The team gives people an out that doesn't involve paying and doesn't involve giving up your files. But for so long, this is changing in sort of the post-colonial attack era. If you'll recall, the attack on the colonial pipeline in 2021 shut down gas stations across the southeast. And it was really a flashpoint ransomware because after that, the U.S. government started taking it seriously. But for so long before that, for years, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, others across the federal government treated ransomware as an ankle biter crime. They thought that the demands were too low, that uh, you know there weren't enough people being affected by it. And this was the mentality, even as ransomware was gaining traction and becoming very serious global threat. And, and you know, we talked to FBI agents who were frustrated that this wasn't getting taken more seriously. But the reality was that leadership has mostly made up of people who came up through the ranks in the post 9-11 era. And they were so, so focused on physical security rather than cybersecurity. And the cyber division was mostly viewed as in their words, the geek squad. And the cyber division just couldn't get traction on the issues that they thought were important, like ransomware. There just weren't enough people with the advanced technical skills who could take on the challenges that were coming in. People who were talented were leaving. So the hunting team really filled this void. And thankfully, now that ransomware is seen as more the global threat that it is, the Bureau is cooperating more and more with members of the hunting team and other private researchers. They're doing things like taking tips on where hacker servers are located um, in hopes of taking them down. And they're sharing with victims details of whether a fix is available. The hunting team for so long have been coming up with these free decryptors for certain strains. And now finally, the FBI is telling victims when those tools are available. It's got to be heartbreaking to be on the receiving end of this. How does the ransomware hunting team get in touch with victims to help them out? Like, you know, I'm assuming that these victims are going to law enforcement. They're being told, sorry, we can't really help you. Just don't pay it. How do they get connected up with the hunting team in order to, to get to get help from them? Yeah, they have to do it very carefully because if they publicize it, it'll tip off the hackers and then the hackers will go and find the vulnerability and fix it so that the hunters won't be able to exploit it anymore. So what they do is, you know, there's a site uh, that you're probably familiar with called Bleeping Computer. It's a hub for everything related to ransomware where victims, law enforcement, hackers, the whole ransomware world converges. And oftentimes, victims of ransomware will go there and post on the forums, hey, I've been hit by whatever strain that they've been hit by, I need help. And then people like Michael or Fabian or Sarah White will go direct message the victims 
tell them quietly, we've got a fix, we can help you, you know, don't mention it on the forums, but, you know, here's how you get it. Many more victims reach out to the hunting team through bleeping computer and other avenues through Michael's own site, ID Ransomware, then contact the FBI. People are often scared to go to the FBI. They don't know where that's going to lead. They don't want to be involved in some kind of criminal investigation. They don't want the world to know that they've been hit by ransomware, particularly if they're a business. So, you know, many, many more victims reach the hunting team than the FBI. You know, it's as, as many in a day I'll contact the hunting team as contact the FBI in a year. Yeah, the actual number is there's 2,000 submissions to Michael's site ID ransomware each day. And there's 2,000 complaints of ransomware to the FBI in a year. Whoa, what a difference of scale. Holy cow. So, Daniel, you mentioned before that a great deal of investigative journalism had to go into writing this book, which tells me that you had to bring many of your your skills to bear on this or many varieties of your skills to bear on this. Were there some fun examples of investigative journalism that you got to engage in over the course of writing the book? Oh, yeah. There were, there were a lot of fun examples. And part of it was just listening to Renee work her magic. You know, she is an unbelievably curious and patient reporter. But I had a lot of fun, too, uh, particularly researching the history of the man I mentioned, Joe Pop, who, who invented ransomware. After his ransomware period was over, after he was disgraced by that, he gave up ransomware and he started with his girlfriend a butterfly conservatory in upstate New York. It's named after him, the Joseph Pop Butterfly Conservatory. And so I went there, his girlfriend uh, agreed to talk with me and she showed me this sort of plaque they had inscribed to him. And it was, you know, to Joe Pop, brilliant scientist and genius and visionary. It mentioned everything great about him, but it never mentioned that he invented ransomware. So that was a, a fun little find. And then there was just a lot of other investigative efforts of finding people to talk to. And Renee, you know, penetrated the FBI and talked to all these people who, who know about that. And that was a very impressive thing that she, she could probably speak to. We were reporting even after the manuscript was in. Just new details from members of the team were just constantly coming in. You think you know everything you can about a person, and they drop something that you never expected to hear. And one thing I can remember, this had to be, you know, with the minutes before we turned the manuscript in, but the hunting team member, Daniel Gallagher, his expertise on the team is tracing down hackers and, and finding literally, you know, their names, where they live, the whole thing. He lets on that he's got something called grapheme color synesthesia, which you may have heard of famous musicians having famous scientists. It's when you see numbers or letters as colors. And he uses this to home in on IP addresses and big, long strings of text. You know, he recalled having it out for some hacker and his name looked like fall colors because the letters were yellows and reds and oranges to him. And it was such an exciting little detail that I was shocked he hadn't mentioned before. And just uncovering little things like that along the way that make the book interesting is it's so rewarding and exciting when it happens. And Dan and I both get really excited when we uncover those kinds of details and the whole process was just a blast. That's that's awesome. How has your viewpoint 
been affected by the authorship of this book and, and knowing that there is a group of people out there who are fighting the good fight? How has your outlook been affected on cybercrime and, and ransomware in particular? I'm so impressed by the members of this team. They're all just ordinary people. They have regular jobs. They work in IT and cybersecurity. Some of them have families. They're just living their lives, but doing these completely extraordinary things on the side. Many of their own families don't know the extent of how much they've helped humanity. Millions of victims have saved billions of dollars. And it's really unbelievable to how much that they've been able to accomplish since they banded together in 2016. Ransomware itself is horrible and you know death and destruction and the problem just keeps getting worse. It's reassuring to us to know that there are these unlikely heroes doing this amazing work out there. Yeah, I would say it's it's uplifting, but it's also reinforced for me how scary the cyber crime threat can be, particularly as the, the cyber groups now, the ransomware groups, are increasingly pairing up with foreign governments like the Putin regime and acting under state sponsorship. I have a number of friends who've read it and they said, we're so impressed by the hunting team, but also we're scared to death by ransomware. And you know, I think a lot of people probably will have that dual reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I can certainly sympathize with that. All right. Last question. Where can people go to find out more about the book and, and about yourselves? Well, I mean, they could certainly find the book on, on Amazon and all other book selling sites, or I would hope their local bookstore. They shouldn't have any trouble finding it available, uh, as they say, wherever books are sold. Excellent. The book is The Ransomware Hunting Team, A Band of Misfits' Improbable Crusade to Save the World from Cybercrime. Dan, Renee, thank you so much for joining me today. Take care. Thanks for having us, Michael. It was a lot of fun. Take care. Okay. Are we ready for rapid fire security questions? As ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say as ready as we ever are, Anna. Dear God. Okay, so this is the game where we rapidly fire security questions at each other to achieve some random but memorable wrong answers. And we get 60 seconds on the clock. Okay, Rue, are you ready? <laughs> oh, I don't know. We'll see. Okay, what's the best gift you've ever received? A uh, flaming pile of poo on my doorstep. <laughs> what's your earliest <laughs> childhood memory? A uh, very, very bright light. <laughs> Who's your favorite superhero? <laughs> Oh, uh, it's it's um, it's it's Electrical Man. What goes into your favorite cocktail? Uh, my mouth. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. Uh, what's your go-to workout song? Hmm? Uh, it's Friday, Friday, Friday by Rebecca Black. Excellent. <laughs> what was a defining moment in your career? Th that time that. I jumped off of the Empire State Building uh, with nothing but a small hang glider. <laughs> Name a book that changed your life. Oh, my God. Um, uh, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. Okay, time's up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will find my space on the wall to stare at. <laughs> you can do it. Are we ready? I'm going to try. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> what was the last thing you purchased online? Bananas. What was your favorite childhood movie? E.T. What's your go-to takeaway order? 
Fish and chips. This is horrible. I'm so bad at these questions. <laughs> Name your favorite animal. Gorilla. What was the first video game you ever played? One fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. <laughs> In what city or town did your parents meet? Mars. <laughs> what was the first exam you failed? How to fly a bike. How to fly a bike. Oh, I, like it. I like that. <laughs> if you needed a new first name, what would it be? Brenda. <laughs> Very good. Wow. That was all my questions oh, for you. I that did was it. fast. Oof. It was lightning. Those were all fake answers, Sarah? Yeah. No, she's now Brenda. You know, Brenda is Shiner's wife's name. That's why I'm like, okay, uh-huh. who's another lady oh. I know? Who's someone I know? I'm going to go with her, her name. Yes, Brenda. <laughs> You're now Brenda to me, okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. Okay. I want Rue to have that name now. <laughs> Brenda. <laughs> well, this was... This was delightful. It was, it was good chatting with you both. I, I was I was definitely looking forward to starting the day like this. So thank you. This was a lot of fun. Yes, very much an excellent start to the day. All right. Well, love you both. Love you both. Love you both. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye.